Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report Podcast. I'm Ethan Ryder. Today I'm joined by Chris Cartman. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm a little bit tired, you know, but hanging in there. There's been a lot going on. The last uh, the last week has felt like a month. Um, been nuts, but doing fine. How are you, Ethan? I'm doing well. The U.S. men's national team through the round of 16. Big, That's big goals. Yeah, big, big deal. So, I mean, I'm happy. I can't be mad after that, that's for sure. Sweating, sweating bullets for, like, the final 20 minutes of that game. For no reason, too. Viewers were dominating, decided to play defensive. I don't know why, but whatever. We'll move on. Also joined by Noah Furtado. Noah, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Very well rested, even given the long weekend. Lots going on. Awesome. Also joined by Cole Bradley. Cole, how are you doing today? Doing well, Ethan, and as always, I hope all is well with you. It is, as I just talked about, U.S. moving on. But we will talk about the Territorial Cup a little bit later on in the podcast, but the big news in Tempe, the hiring of Kenny Dillingham as head coach. It was pretty clear a change was needed, and ASU acted very quickly and fast with an official announcement of the hiring of Kenny Dillingham on Sunday. Dillingham is 32 years old, the youngest FBS head coach, Dillingham, is an Arizona State graduate, was an offensive graduate assistant under former ASU offensive coordinator Mike Norvell in 2014 and 2015. He then went on to serve as an offensive coordinator starting in 2018 at Memphis, 2019 at Auburn, and then for two years at Florida State before getting hired on as the coordinator and primary play caller at Oregon under Dan Lanning. Chris, you've known Dillingham for nearly a decade, so what do you think about the hire and how it all unfolded? Well, it makes me feel old, uh, first of all. Um, one of the things I said immediately after was every ASU football coach that I've covered um, for the last almost two decades, they've all been at least a decade older than me, and Dillingham is like 15, almost 15 years younger than me. Um, so that is crazy. Of course, he's the youngest coach that there is in the country at this level now. Um I, this is a paradigm-shifting development. It is an acknowledgement by ASU President Michael Crow and Ray Anderson, the athletic director, that um, things are a lot different than they have been in the college football and athletics landscape. And maybe even that the things that they were doing previously um, were wrong. Um, there was a quote that Ray Anderson said in a response to a question that I asked him that he attributed to uh, Confucius, um, which essentially said that, um, you know, when you, when you don't achieve your goals, you don't change your goals, you change the process that, that you are undertaking, um, the steps, the action steps. So um, they, are, they are taking some very different action steps here. Now, one of the things that I've said about the person that ASU should hire before I knew that it was going to be Kenny Dillingham is that ASU should find someone who checks three main boxes. And those boxes are one, somebody who has uh, local and uh, Pac-12 knowledge and uh, somebody who uh, has the ability to understand how to build a staff and recruit in the region and in the state. And then somebody who has a been a coordinator at a high college level or NFL level and understands scheme 
and how to uh, build a staff that can be tailored to scheme and uh, recruit to scheme. And Dillingham checks all three of those boxes. He is a Phoenix native. Um, he went to ASU. He was GA at ASU. So he he understands. He was at high school coach at Chaparral prior to that. Uh, he was on uh, state championship uh, teams at coaching on the staff there. So he has a very deep uh, structural and institutional knowledge about the state and in ASU specifically. Um, spent for two years, 2014-2015, during a very successful period under Todd Graham with uh, basically a, you know being a, a mentee of uh, Mike Ravel, who was probably the best offensive coordinator that ASU's had in recent decades where we saw what happened with his career. And um, Dillingham, of course, uh, has been on some pretty big-time staffs, uh, Florida State, Oregon. Uh, that ASU staff was really good. They had Dan Lanning, who's the head coach of Oregon. Uh, so he has a lot of connections and knows people, and uh, that should allow him to put together a staff that can recruit Arizona and the region more broadly. Um and also, uh, he being an offensive coordinator and play caller in Oregon, who is the disciple of Norvell, he's somebody who understands scheme in the current college landscape at presumably a pretty good level. He's not proven as a play caller. This is his only year he did it as a play caller. So maybe that that particular box, there's a little bit more that's, that, that has to be demonstrated. But what I think is very clear to me is that ASU's prior coaches they, uh, Herm Edwards, Todd Graham, uh, Dennis Erickson, Dirk Cutter, all four of them were missing one or two or three of those components. They, they, none of them had more than like one or one and a half of those things checked. Uh, Herm Edwards had basically like none. So you know, that's partly why we're, where we're at. Where, that's why we are where we are right now essentially. Um, I, I, as you said there, I definitely have known Dillingham for quite a long time. Five years ago, yesterday, he tweeted me that his, he, he sent me a DM on Twitter that uh, his dream job was to be ASU's head football coach. And, and uh, so I don't think he was like t telling anybody else that five years ago in any other school, uh, covering anybody other school. So, this means a, a great deal to him. I know for sure that he is a extremely hardworking, diligent, persistent, ambitious, um, and emotional uh, person who's going to be authentically himself. I think ASU fans overwhelmingly wanted Kenny Dillingham to be the coach. That was expressed pretty clearly. They wanted ASU to go this route, somebody who – has all those boxes checked and understands the NIL landscape uh, and is going to be able to connect with young young kids, um, players, recruits, et cetera. And so Crow and Anderson, they either sort of changed because it was politically advantageous for them to change, to listen to the to give the fans what they wanted to ease sort of any pressure on them. And or they decided that they needed somebody who was like a Dillingham. And they said 
in the, the press conference that there was a panel of people. There was Corn Ferry, which is a search firm that had a couple, couple executives that they were working with. And then there was like some former Sun Devils, Juan Roque and Jake Plummer and whoever. And they said that everybody, there was a consensus that Kenny Gillingham was the right man for the job. Now, I, I, I'm a little bit skeptical that everyone just thought that Kenny Gillingham was the right person for the job. I think that's probably not the case. But I, I do believe that the things that people wanted ASU to find uh, in terms of the criteria, a lot of them are met by Kenny Dillingham. He just doesn't have the head coaching experience that has been so important at ASU for so very long with Michael Crow and Ray Anderson. And so that, that area and his youth, those are the things that create some uncertainties and unknowns about how well he will end up handling uh, being in a, a much bigger role where he has a lot more responsibilities and obligations and also how he's able to manage a staff where almost everybody's going to be older than him or vast majority of people older than him that could present some challenges as well. So there's, there's, this is not like, I personally think it's a good hire for where ASU is at right now, but this is by far and away not a sure thing or anything remotely close to a sure thing. And there's a lot of things that could still potentially go wrong. It's just that uh, I don't know that they had a perfect, they were going to be able to find some perfect magical candidate that they could bring in and, and have exceptional confidence that he would be able to get the job done. And and when you speak about what he's going to bring to the team and, and the program as a whole, fans got a little bit about that with his introductory press conference. And it was, by most people, a very positive press conference. There was emotions. He was talking about being back home. The emotions seemed very genuine and raw. But Cole, what were your takeaways from from his introductory press conference? And, and what did you think about how he handled it and just what he said? I thought he did a wonderful job and just channeling his emotions and also covering a lot of the very important things related to how he's going to attack the job in the early stages and also sort of giving or hinting at sort of a long-term plan with regards to, you know, recruiting and building a staff and things like that. Um, but I think you can just tell how much this really means to him and, you know, how it's sort of been, I guess, a you know, almost a decade in the making, this was his dream job, you know, and he, he, he seemingly made it known and that was something that you know came kind of um it all ended up kind of leading him to this point i guess and i think that it was really evident in just how he was talking about um you know the people who were supporting him at the press conference his family being there friends uh you, you know uh, former colleagues people like that all of that i think was very um impassioned very inspiring on us on a certain level um and I think it's hard not to sort of be fired up, especially if you're an ASU fan regarding this hire and just how he handled things, especially with his first impression. So I was definitely um, impressed by the way he handled himself and went into detail about certain things um, on Sunday. Noah, was there anything that stood out to you in his press conference? Um, the transparency of like, his emotions, just the way he was feeling. He, he didn't really hold that back. Um, and I think people really wanted to see that. 
from this new hire. They wanted, they needed energy, uh, something to really boost them after a, a horrendous season. And, you know, moving forward, if he can sort of can carry that through, right. Cause it's, it's, it's good. It's, it's nice to be excited at an introductory presser. Uh, it's his first head coaching job. You'd expect him to be that way. But, you know, in the days following that, even you see him on Twitter and he's, you know, engaging uh, with Sun Devil fans, uh, alumni, just openly, publicly. Uh, I remember one of the instances was Jordan Simone uh, just tweeted out that he'd run through a brick wall for uh, Dillingham and Dillingham uh, sort of responded to it um, because Simone said, like, he has to get one more year of eligibility to play for this guy. Um when you, when you see those kinds of interactions, uh, I think it signals that uh, this guy is, is, is ready and, and in for the challenge that is going to be leading this program that uh, is in no way, shape, or form in a good place. Uh, obviously, there's still that NCAA investigation pending. Um, after a season like this, it's going to take a lot to really infuse you know some positives. Uh, but just from the energy, the feel that you got from his presser, it's, it's a good start uh, for Dillingham. And, and now the moves even following, uh, you know, the coaching hires and everything that's been on the transfer portal and stuff, that's going to be, you know, further indication as to the trajectory, I guess, of where this program is going to be headed, uh, you know, in the coming months. You know, it's going to be important that he gets on some of those tasks early and often uh, in order for this, this uh, I guess, promise to continue you know, among the Sun Devil community. Chris, there were a lot of things that Dillingham talked about during his press conference, but you wrote a column that people can read on the site. And it's going to be in detail about the biggest takeaway from the press conference. But what can you do to kind of just summarize that, that column on the site? Yeah, I'm not going to belabor this because we are going to have a premium podcast. We're going to get into a, a lot more depth. Um, but the, the key thing by far, I thought, was that uh, essentially Dillingham said that there's no shortcuts in relationships, that building strong relationships takes time, and it's essential to build strong relationships to be able to do the job properly. And um, what that really means is that he understands that even if you're not successful in recruiting the first time around, when you're going after a high profile prospect or a five-star guy, maybe you lose him because of NIL, or maybe you lose him because he wants to leave Arizona or some other reason. He still has developed that relationship in a way that that could pay dividends later on. And in the, the era where kids are so migratory and they're transferring schools all the time and whatever, that matters a lot because ASU is going to be able to get more kids now, probably via the transfer portal, who are going to be able to play right away than high school recruits or junior college recruits. Transfer portal is where ASU is going to have to live. Billingham said, we're going to attack the transfer portal, right? Well, if you've already set up the relationships with those kids who went elsewhere because you recruited them for two, three, four years, you offered them early, well, then you're in a good position to be able to get them on the bounce back. And that's the thing that Herm Edwards and Antonio Pierce didn't really seem to get, especially with local recruiting, that Dillingham, I think, understands abundantly. 
And we are going to see in the coming weeks and months that ASU is going to rebuild its roster largely by college transfers. Yeah, and, and Noah, you touched on it, and Chris, you just touched on it as well. There's an introductory press conference, and then there's what happens within the coming months and what the actual actions that have taken place. Pretty immediately, he's already brought in two coaches after saying in the press conference that he's going to retain Sean Iguano. He has agreed, or uh, Charlie Ragel and Vince Amy have both agreed to join his staff. Chris, what do you think about these two joining the staff? And then what do you kind of expect from Dillingham in, in terms of what he's going to do in the rest of signing his staff? Right. So with Sean Iguano staying on, who was a longtime Chandler High School, very successful coach, with like four state championships, Charlie Ragel coming back to Arizona. Um, he's going to have more than double his salary. I'm sure he was making 205000 for one season. Idaho State, they were 1-10. in 10. But prior to that, he did a very good job coaching special teams and as a recruiter at Cal for like five years and before that at Arizona for like four or five years. And prior to that, he was the Chaparral head coach um, who was Dillingham's boss when Dillingham was quarterback's coach and leader offensive coordinator winning three state championships, 2009 through 11, I believe, at Chaparral. Um, so they were making a very obvious uh, statement that they're going to try to recruit Arizona very aggressively. And maybe, again, as I said earlier, they might not get some of these Arizona kids initially, but then maybe if they want to transfer because things aren't going well or whatever, if they go to elite school, or they decide not to offer the kid, but then the kid does well at a lower school, they can maybe get them later on. Um, and then, uh, you know, I've known Ray, Ragel was, you know, I've also followed his career very closely for a lot of years, very industrious, did a very good job of building the chaparral program, figuring out how to bring talent into that program. Um, Vince Amy, a fun fact, actually, my very first class that I had at ASU, was Psych 101, I sat next to Vince Amy in that class. So I've known Vince Amy for 27 years or something like that at this point. Uh, so that's a pretty easy relationship for me. But he is uh, such, a, such a positive, energetic, has a great smile. He's got just good energy, real positive guy. He went to Arizona where he was coaching for a few years uh, before that, the previous staff got fired, which then led to him catching on with Charlie Riggle, where uh, Vince Amy was also a coach. He coached the D-line at uh, Idaho State under Riggle. But Amy was uh, started for ASU in the Rose Bowl in 1996, and he was a draft pick in the seventh round, I think, by the Raiders. He played professional football for a number of years, including in the Arena League. So he understands he's been, he's been around tons of coaches, He's been around the game a long time. He has a, he has a good understanding about the D line, and so I don't know what's going to happen with subsequent hires. We're going to be talking about that a lot in the uh, premium podcast. I do know of some guys that are probably going to be added to the staff here coming up. But we're going to have to reserve that for now and, and talk about that in another podcast. As you say, talking about in another podcast. That's all we're going to talk about Dillingham in this podcast. Is free podcast, but we will have a premium podcast down the line with a lot more on Dillingham's 
addition, as well as all of these staff hirings and anything around Dillingham that you may want to know. So make sure to stay tuned to that uh, and make sure you're there when we do end up doing that podcast. Uh, but right now we're going to talk about the Territorial Cup. ASU lost 38-35 to on the road to Arizona to end the season at 3-9 and and 2-7 and in the Pac-12. This was the first loss in the Territorial Cup since 2016, the first time ASU has ever lost nine games in a season, and the first time it has ever finished with only three wins in a 12-game season, and it was ASU's worst win percentage since 1946. So wasn't a great end of the season with the loss in the Territorial Cup, but what were the initial takeaways from the game, Noah? They just – I'm not going to get into the details because we will, but defensively against Arizona, a pass-heavy team, they allowed them to run all over. Uh, pretty sure that Arizona, of however many plays they ran, they, they had more rushes than passes. And the reason being was because they were extremely effective at running the ball. So why would there even be a need for Jaden Delora to, to pass the ball? By the way, Delora entering that game was the fifth uh, most effective, I, I should just say fifth in passing yards in the nation. Um, and he just didn't need to have a big game for them to win. Um the problems up front, the inability to maintain gap integrity um, just continued um, as we expected. Again, there was, there was continuous talk week to week about needing to shore up those uh, disciplinary issues collectively. And, you know, we sort of all realized that was part of the, uh, the problem, part of the struggles, but uh, this, that late in the season, there wasn't really an indicator that it could be done effectively, uh, even for a rivalry game. Uh, the energy was high, obviously. Lots of uh, lots of penalties. It felt like as the game went on, uh, it was harder to pull guys out of uh, out of scrums at the end of plays. Um, and that was interesting for me to see, at least uh, first time in person. But I just feel like. Regardless of the energy I felt uh, ASU brought, their their problems, you know, that have essentially plagued, uh, you know, their ability to to win games, to pull out uh, some close matchups, even uh, were just showing up left and right again in Tucson. Cole, what about you? What were your initial takeaways from the loss? Like Noah said, with the with the rushing defense, that's probably the biggest one. I mean, when you're going up against an Arizona team that is overwhelmingly, you know, sort of opposite from like an Oregon state team that they played the previous week where Oregon state makes it well known that they're going to run the ball and they do Arizona seems kind of like the exact opposite where it's, you know, they're very pass heavy and they're, you know, you know, it's coming and then you just kind of have to stop it. And they sort of flipped the script on them a little bit and, you know, ran the ball extremely effectively. Um, ASU wasn't getting off of blocks as that, you know, that was a problem that's been a problem. It seemed like for seemingly this entire year, um, like Noah said, the gap integrity was a huge problem. Multiple missed tackles up front, um, just a lot of sloppy defensive play. And then, you know, on top of that, the I think it was the five turnovers 
Um, U of A force was a huge factor. I think we'll get into that a little bit more. Um, that, you know, you, you just can't win when you're turning over the ball that much as well. Um, super physical game. ASU, you know, played this game like a rivalry. They There was a lot of hate that was sort of channeled, it seemed like. Um, same with the other side. But it's one of those things where, um, especially when those emotions um, start to overcome guys in a little bit more of a negative way and it's channeled in a negative way. You see the penalties, the, you know, the stuff that gives up extra yardage, things like that. That certainly didn't help ASU as well. And there was a lot of that. So um, a lot of the same points that Noah made, but um, those five takeaways, especially were another thing that I think was very costly. Chris, what about you? Anything different from you in terms of initial takeaways? Well, yeah, I would just say that um, I feel badly for the, the seniors at ASU who had to go out the way that they went out. And I would feel that way about any team, any teams and seniors um, when the program was so poorly coached and so poorly run uh, in the last year, really, you know, almost 18 months, actually, um, NCAA, NCAA investigation. Um, totally derailed this this program, and I just think that um, the deficiencies that uh, were present throughout the season from Donnie Henderson, especially, um, they were again on display in this in this game, and um, I, I just. When I watch ASU this season, I continuously thought to myself, this team is not less talented than some of these other teams that ASU lost to Arizona, obviously Eastern Michigan, Washington State, Oregon State, right? Um, and yet ASU lost all those games. Um, and they, they did not – they did not learn from their mistakes and try to do enough different things. That, that's the definition of insanity is repeating the same things over and over again that don't work and think that you're going to end up with a different result. And that, that happened again. Yes. The turnovers, that was a big part of the game and there was, you know, a lot of other stuff, but uh, the main, main, main thing was, if you can't figure out how to plug run gaps against a team that isn't even a good running offense, and that's happened several times a season, you just don't deserve to win, and uh, your players don't deserve to have been coached by you. All right, and you guys talk about kind of overall stuff, but let's get a little bit more into those specifics. When you look at the game it's a three-point loss, and it's hard to maybe figure out exactly uh, where to blame. Trenton Borgay had a, a very good passing performance. He did have three turnovers, including two on the last two ASU drives. So who do you guys really think is to maybe blame for this performance, or who do you kind of put the, the loss on? Is it is it Borgay? Is it the rest of the offense, or is it more so the defense? Cole? I think – he definitely deserves some blame, especially for like the first interception he threw was not, was not good. Um, the second one or the last one would obviously, I don't think was really his fault at all. Um, that was just, you know, 
good pressure by Arizona. Um, and then the fumble was obviously very costly as well, but I just would put way more blame on ASU's defense, not being able to get stops like really at all. I mean, there was a couple good ones in the first half um, in the red zone. Um, and that certainly, at least from my perspective, kind of made things seem like, you know, positive leading into the second half, like, Oh, maybe they can carry this over and, um, you know, it'll translate into a little bit more success. It didn't. Uh, U of A ran, I think it was 12 plays in the third quarter, scored 21 points. I don't think you're really going to win games when it's hard to win games when you're giving up that many points. Um, I'm not really, you know, not a high volume of plays at all. So that certainly, you know, forces ASU to play catch up um, or to, you know, try and um, respond or puts more pressure on them to respond more than they probably should in a game like that, especially considering as we've talked about ASU um, or U of A was sort of came in as this, you know, vaunted passing group and was very weak on the ground and was able to basically sort of exercise those demons, if you will, um, and, you know, get the win. So I would put way more blame on ASU's defense um, as I would for a lot of the losses, I think this season, um, I don't think it's just limited to, um, this one, but it certainly was, um, the main culprit I'd say. Noah, what about you? Well, you can't turn the ball over five times and expect to win, but you also can't give up 214 rushing yards to a running back that had 500 and some odd rushing yards in the previous 10 games. Michael Wiley, the Arizona running back, had 12 rushing attempts for 214 rushing yards and three touchdowns. He looked like an All-American against ASU's run defense, and he was able to gash them time and time again. And when that is the case, it's hard to recover against that sort of humiliation, I feel like, because there are a number of occasions. He had a 72-yard run that should never, ever happen, just given how Arizona's rushing attack performed throughout the season. We mentioned it. That offense, if they were going to hurt you, they are going to hurt you through the air. And the fact that they – Jaden Lohr was 12 for 23, 200 passing yards, no touchdowns, and a pick. If you showed that stat line to anyone before the game and you said, does Arizona put up 38 points with him playing like that, they, they would say no, they, like a resounding no. And so that, I feel like, is just the biggest standout stat that put ASU in because you just you can't do that to your offense. Sean Aguano was talking about it actually even after the game, how he always felt like, oh, now we got to go all the way back down the field now because of this huge run or this big play here or there. A lot of the big plays came on the ground. And it's it's just it's a it's a difficult game you play um, when you allow something like that to occur. Chris, what are your thoughts? Do you agree with Cole and Noah? 
Sure. I do agree largely with them. Um, I just want to say, like, it, the pressure that Noah's talking about there that is being put on your offense shouldn't really be placed on your offense. Like, you shouldn't need uh, Trenton Bourget to go throw for 400 yards uh, in Tucson to, like, have a chance to beat Arizona and need to score, like, on your you know final drive or two or whatever. Um, and when I watched and I look back a little bit at Borgay's performance, what I saw was um, he, he, he was very good on 90-something percent of the plays in the game. Um, 37 of 49 for 376 yards with three touchdowns, two interceptions, a uh, 76 completion percentage. The, the problem, and, and by the way, his receivers did a tremendous job in this game. There was like one difficult catch after another. Jalen Conyers, 10 catches for 76 yards. Geo Sanders had his best game definitely as a son of including his first touchdown, eight catches for 120 yards. I mean, tough, contested catches. Elijah Badger, eight catches for 92 yards. Uh, I don't think any of them dropped anything. I mean, it was, it was an incredible performance by – a wide receiver group that we all collectively were like, yeah, at the beginning of the season, yeah, this isn't a good passing attack. Right? Like, that's kind of what we thought. Uh, largely because of the receivers. Um, Upward game made two really big mistakes. The first interception was on Arizona's 30, and it was on first down. And he threw the ball into double coverage, basically. Ball gets tipped, gets intercepted. You have to know the situation. That's so important, right? You're going down. You're already in scoring position. You don't need first down to put the ball in jeopardy whatsoever. Right? Take a dump off, uh, throw the ball away, or scramble for a few yards. That's it. So that's your options. You're throwing the ball there, not an option, right? Then on the fourth quarter interception that he had, I mean, pardon me, the fourth quarter um, strip sack that was recovered by Arizona that he had. ASU was third and six. ASU had the ball in like around the 20 yard line or something of Arizona. You're already well within field goal range, trailing by three with a few minutes left in the game. So, what that means is you got a very good opportunity to keep a field goal there. Tie the game up, a few minutes left. Okay, maybe, yeah, your defense isn't going to stop. Uh, Arizona, you're worried about that, and that's why, you know, you are trying to make something happen there. That, that part of the psychology that could go into that. But that's not your that's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is you can't fumble, and also you can't take a sack because taking a sack there makes your field goal uh, 40-something yards, right? And the pressure came from both sides, and he has done a very good job of feeling pressure and being able to kind of move in the pocket to avoid it, and he didn't in this instance. And also the ball, he didn't have security of the ball. I'm not sure if there was somebody here, somewhere he could have thrown the ball, but he definitely could have stepped up into the pocket and then thrown the ball away or scrambled, and ASU would have had a field goal opportunity. So that was also a mistake that he has to learn from. The final interception that he had, that wasn't his fault at all. You know, he's he has to throw the ball and try to make a play happen there. And pressure was immediate and he gets hit on the arm or whatever as he's, as he's throwing the ball. 
But so but when you look at it, you go, okay, well, he had a few mistakes in a game where he threw the ball almost 50 times. It just so happens that two of the mistakes that he made were, were very big mistakes, right? But would ASU have even been in this game if not for Trenton Bourget? I think that that's definitely not the case. I don't think that Emory Jones or any other quarterback that ASU could have put on the field would have put them in a position to where they could have won the game late in the fourth quarter. Um, and obviously, I think that, as I said earlier, the defensive issues are the main reason that ASU lost. So that concludes a very disappointing season for ASU football. We're now going to transition to ASU basketball, which has started 6-1 and one this season ahead of start to Pac-12 play against Colorado on Thursday. They've been very good in their last few games, even without Marcus Bagley, who claims he was suspended for a tweet, admitting he made a mistake in a post-game interaction with Bobby Hurley after ASU beat NAU on November 10th. So let's discuss this a little bit in terms of ASU's looking very good so far this season, even without Marcus Bagley in the last few games. They seem to have really kind of found a rhythm, uh, both defensively and offensively. So Cole, we'll go to you first. What what does ASU season look like heading into Pac-12 play, and and does you know a, a Marcus Bagley possible absence affect your outlook of the team? I think it definitely does. Um, even as good as they've been, I don't really know how sustainable it is without arguably one of their most talented players. Not even arguably is one of their most talented players. Um, I think that's certainly going to be something to watch moving forward, especially if he doesn't play um, for the remainder of the season or at all the rest of the way. Um, I just think that as good as ASU has been, it's, it, it's, it's just hard to sustain that. So in terms of if it changes, like, like what we thought and sort of in the preseason, I mean, I'd probably bump them down a win or two um, solely based on that personally, but um, that's sort of the way I see it. No, what are your thoughts on a possible Bagley absence and just what this team's done for so far this season and what it looks like heading into Pac-12 play? I think if he doesn't play another game, their ceiling might drop a little bit, but the chemistry right now among the players who are on the court uh, has been developing in a promising way. Uh, you have Warren Washington, uh, who's been playing solid um, inside the paint, protecting the rim on the defensive end of the floor um, after kind of being choppy throughout the earlier stages of the season. I think I feel like he's uh, an important piece uh, and he's now sort of getting into the feel of his new role. The, the perimeter players have have, you know, always sort of been um with high upside, but now they're starting to understand a little bit more about how to play together, uh, finding that sync uh, increasingly with every game. Uh, their past three matchups, they've, they've won by 20 or more points. Uh, granted, two were against, you know, pretty inferior competition. The one against Michigan obviously is is the, you know, the, the game that the upset that everyone, you know, knows about now. Um, I just feel like without Bagley, the lineups that Hurley can put on the court are just uh, smaller. He's, he's been working through more three guard uh, groupings 
And in the preseason, he talked about how, you know, getting more size on the court at one time because Bagley, he's 6'8". He said he was going to be playing more at the three, three position and then he'd rotate uh, Alonzo Gaffney, uh, Enoch Boache, potentially Warren Washington and now Duke Brennan sort of giving them positive minutes, you know, at the four or five positions. And, and without Bagley, he's, he hasn't been able to do that. Um, there's been times in games where ASU gets out-rebounded and I feel like once Pac-12 play starts, that could be potentially uh, damaging, um, especially against some of the size uh, that's out there in the conference. Um, but with all that said, uh, you know, Bagley, just his activity on social media right now is sort of it, it, it feels panicked. Um, it's not a good sign as far as like how well, even if he did come back to the team and played uh, in a game, how well he'd fit because you don't want to really see a teammate acting out like this. Um, and it just, the, the, the vibe I get from all, everything that sort of transpired in the last several days is, you know, Marcus Bagley is extremely talented. Uh, obviously, you know, if he was on this team, he'd make them better uh, at his best point. But it feels like there's a lot of yes, yes men type things going around um, with who he's closest with. And that, you know, it, it feels like that is causing some conflict, some tension between him and, and Hurley um, and, and Bobby Hurley. There's there's no other guy I feel like on on that team in that program that is rooting for Bagley more than him. He's the head coach, he's the leader. Uh, and he brought him in three years ago, knowing how much he could potentially bring uh, to Arizona State basketball. It's just the way things have gone. It's not looking good for what his future will entail moving forward. And Chris, it gets, I wouldn't say confusing, but it's kind of hard to, to figure out what this team can do without Bagley. And I mean, you go back to the, the press conference after the NAU game from Bobby Hurley, some some at the time we were unaware of kind of what happened and where the, the comments came from. But uh, with Bagley, without Bagley and, and the team seemingly on an upward trend right now, what do you think about where the team stands and what their pack to play could look like? Well, you can't let any player undermine your culture. That's something that Bobby Hurley learned two seasons ago. He admitted earlier, just a few weeks ago, that that team, the pandemic uh, team that was 2020-2021, uh, was uh, peak dysfunction, whatever dysfunction, height of dysfunction, whatever he said. Um, Mark Spadley was a part of that team. That was Josh Christopher and Remy Martin and uh, – Alonzo Verge, and they never got along. They never gelled. It was a very disappointing season that AFU had. And Bagley's tweeting very clearly about the situation, very clearly is something that Bob or Hurley didn't want him to be doing because that's what then led to him subsequently tweeting that he uh, was suspended, was I don't think it was tweeting that he did something wrong. I think it was tweeting about what Bobby Hurley wanted to keep in house. Right. And that's, that's a coach's decision. That's not Marcus Bagley's decision. And taking it a step further, uh, for, we asked Hurley why Bagley didn't play the first game that he was able to after the road trip that they took when Bagley went to the warmups and everything. And he said, 
didn't want to disrupt the rhythm and everything that was going on that was doing really well. And we talked about the depth that they have on this team. That probably was early trying to protect Marcus Bagley instead of saying, yeah, Marcus Bagley, you know, screwed up by some stuff that he did after the NAU game. Right. So I think that Hurley's perspective on this is not going to express it publicly, I'm sure, but privately it probably would be, Hey, I've done everything I could for this kid for the last two years. While he hasn't been able to play, he's been injured. There's been a million things that have happened at every turn. I've tried to have his back and put him in the best light and all this stuff. And then this is, you know, he's, He's tweeting this stuff. He, he's healthy, and that's not why he's not playing. And blah blah blah. And I, I'm not saying I, Bobby Hurley didn't say anything about Marcus Bagley doing something wrong after NAU. Didn't say anything at all about it ever. He still hasn't, right? So there's a there's a maturity aspect that's lacking with Marcus Bagley, right? Sometimes you just have to suck it up, and okay, fine. Like maybe you don't like the way your coach has treated you or whatever, but that doesn't mean that you get to go and just run and post that stuff on social media. And also the NBA is looking at this, right? The NBA is not going to side with Marcus Bagley. They're going to side with Bobby Hurley. Okay. Period. Especially after everything that's happened with Marcus Bagley over the last couple of years. So Bagley embarrassed himself in this way. And then the, the tweet that he then deleted about, like, you know, people try to build you up and then tear you down. Why would Bobby Hurley want to tear down a guy that's a second-team preseason all-conference player? So what, what benefit would that be to Bobby Hurley after everything that he's done for the last year? He could have already told him, Marcus, I don't want you back on our team next year, right? So what, what, like, what is the grand scheme here? So it doesn't make sense what Marcus Bagley's narrative is. I do get that maybe he had earnest intentions to say that he made a mistake. Fine. I res- that's fine. But if your coach says, hey, we're going to keep this in-house, right, and you don't do it, well, there's, then, then that seems like a likely reason why there would be a repercussion in this particular case. Now, as it relates to ASU's team, well, this is the year that of any year where they could overcome not having one of their more talented players like Bagley because of how deep that they are, which we've talked about quite extensively. Now, I personally didn't expect Devin Cambridge to look as good as he has at the, at the outset of the season. He's played a ton of very successful minutes in a role that services what in a different way, kind of, but the position that Marcus Bagley plays, right? Is he a shooter? Is he a, is he a spot-up shooter? No. Does his jumper look sort of broken? Yes. Is he still shooting whatever, he 30% or something from three and making some shots? And But, okay, he's running the floor. He's getting blocks. He's an energy guy. He's rebounding. Okay, cool. Like, he's doing some really good things. And then you also have Desmond Cambridge and Jemiah Neal, all the guys that Hurley's talking about. And then you have Frankie Collins and Austin Nunez. And so it's like, and they all seem to get along really well, right? So you going back to the point I made initially, you can't let somebody undermine the culture that you want to have early learn this. He made it clear that this was his opinion, that they had this dysfunctional team a couple of years ago. He doesn't want to go back to that ever again. 
right? And ASU right now, I agree with the guys, doesn't have as high as upside as if Marcus Badley's balling out and playing well in a part of this. But I think we all knew based upon the last couple of years that there was a good percentage of chance that Marcus Badley wasn't going to work out even this season. Whatever that is, 20%, 30%, 50%, whatever you want to put on it. Everybody's going to maybe disagree about that. But there was a good chance that he wasn't going to be able to, someone was going to happen. He was going to get hurt. Something was going to happen, right? Because we've kind of seen that. So, yes, this lowers ASU ceiling. I think there's a good chance he might not be back after what he said today. That's just speculation on my point. We'll stop. But ASU probably has the ability to overcome that better than I had expected a month ago or even a few weeks ago. And I think ASU still is going to end up being a pretty good basketball team. I mean, right now on Ken Palm, they are 52nd in the country, right? You look at their other teams in the country, I mean, in the Pac-12, pardon me, well, uh, UCLA's got two losses and Oregon's got four losses and Colorado's got three losses and USC's got three losses and Stanford's got four losses. And maybe they played a little bit tougher schedule than ASU, but ASU played some teams that they could have they lost to. Right, besides the one game that lost Texas Southern, easily could have lost the VCU neutral game. Easily, I mean Michigan, of course. Right, so ASU could have had two or three losses right now. They're playing pretty good. They have a chance to be. We all kind of thought they'd be a middle of the road or a little bit less Pac-12 team, and we talked about that at the outset of the season. They were picked to finish whatever they were tenth. Right. Well, they are. They're not going to finish tenth in the Pac-12. They're not. And they may be able to finish in the top third of the Pac-12 if everything goes right for them. But there's no reason, based upon what we're seeing from this team, that even without Marcus Bagley, that they should be a bottom half of the Pac-12 team in the conference. Don't that should not happen. They're just they have they have too much size, uh, athleticism. Frankie Collins is a legitimate point guard. I agree. With, I think it's been proven now. But what some of the things that Bobby Hurley said about him. In terms of what he provides, they're settling in with the players and understanding each other and having a good feel and a rhythm with DJ Horn and and uh, Frankie Collins and their, their Desmond Cambridge and Dev, Devin Cambridge. And so I think they got a chance to be a pretty good team. I mean, whatever we said, see the over-under was at the outset of the season. I think I said it was like around 17 or something like that. I think now you have to have it be more like or 18. I think you have to now have to say that that's around 19 to 20. And there's a, there is a very good chance that they could win 20-plus games this year. just wanted to clarify this real quick. Uh, this ASU team for, like, football was 10th. ASU was still bottom half of the Pac-12, but they were seventh for preseason, uh, oh, for preseason media poll. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate um, that. Thank you. And then the only thing I wanted to add really was, like, if you're Bobby Hurley now, going into whatever his next press conference is, if it's after the uh, – not after the Colorado game, whatever their next home game is, what, what, do, you, what do you say? You're, when you get a question about Marcus Bagley, what do you, what do you say now? Like he is um, – he has the bags out, you know? I, I, I don't know what he's going to say, obviously, but I, I, I think that maybe he just would say, I just prefer to keep that in, internal. Which – which would make clear 
that he always was trying to keep it internal, right? Yeah. If he does that, you know, there's only two options at this point. That's one. And the other one is, yes, Marcus is suspended indefinitely or for whatever period of time because he decided to voice something that I had been trying to keep internal. One of the, it's only really those two things. Or, you know, that he's got suspended because he was putting stuff up that we have a, you know, a team rule about or that I've been clear on that I don't want to be taken onto social media. I, I don't know what he's going to say. But I, I, I do strongly believe, though, that you cannot let people, uh, players, you cannot let players do things that are outside of what you expect and then be like, that's okay. And then you go put, play, put them in the lineup. Because everybody else sees that, it undermines the, the what you're trying to do overall. And that we've, I've covered plenty of teams where coaches let guys get away with that and it killed their, their culture. A lot of stuff is still unclear with the whole situation. A lot of stuff has become more clear after today and, and all the stuff that went down. But either way, we're definitely going to keep bringing you coverage of whatever happens, whether Marcus Bagley plays another game in a Sun Devil jersey or does not. We'll continue to bring you basketball coverage throughout the season. We'll also be giving you a full breakdown of Kenny Dillingham's hire and continued coverage of his hiring of new staff that will be both on the site as well as a premium podcast coming your way. This was a free podcast, but we're going to have even more. There's a lot of stuff in this podcast today, but we'll have a lot for premium subscribers uh, in the coming weeks. So make sure you are subscribed to get that premium podcast. We'll also do a full wrap up of ASU's disappointing football season as well. But Chris, you had a couple things that you wanted to make sure people knew about. Yeah. So um, we just had a promotion for trying to entice new membership, uh, the Black Friday through Cyber Monday thing. And um, we had a massive response. It is actually the, the, the most number of new subscriptions that we've had in the entire time that I've, um, uh, the site has been published on 24-7 Sports. You have to actually go back to when I left Rivals to work for Scout in, I think, 2015 to find a time when we added more new subscribers. We added over 200 subscribers in a period of less than a week. Um, and that that's uh, that just shows you how excited that the community was for the Kenny Dillingham hire and trying to get reinvigorated after what was a very sort of dark period in the last year. Um, with Herm Edwards, we, to be totally candid, we lost the most subscribers that we've ever lost in the year prior to this happening. And ASU talked about it a lot, no four-star recruit since July of last year. And recruit, they're like last in the Power Five and the current recruiting rankings and all, all these things, right? The worst season that anybody can remember unless you're like 90 years old or something like that. And, um, which if you are, and thank you for listening, appreciate that. But, um, it, it just felt so great for me to see this, uh, infusion of energy and people who were waiting to, you know, on the sidelines. And I'm sure that a lot of them listen to the podcast, our free podcasts, right. And they see our stuff on social media 
And then they were like, okay, cool. Now is the time I'm going to hop in and join this, you know, Sun Devil Source and the Devil Sanctuary. And I just want to say thank you so much to those people, but also really from the bottom of my heart, all the people that decided not to cancel their membership over the last year when things were just like really terrible. And I was having to deliver a lot of sort of bad perspective, you know, stuff that nobody really wants to hear, but yet is also honest, right? Like the th one of the things I tweeted about that I think is really important is um, it's being honest about the bad that gives credibility when the things are good, right? It's like if all I was doing was like gassing up ASU the last year, and oh yeah, they're going to be good, and the, the NCAA sanctions, that's not going to be a problem, and this staff's going to be fine, and blah, blah, blah. And then they went three and nine, right? Well, that, wouldn't that make me look like I didn't know what was going on and how bad it was going to be? Or I was snowing people who were paying me money, right, to give them the reality of the situation. Well, that's not what we do on our site. So even if me being negative led to people canceling because they didn't want to come on and see negative, right? That still, those people still know now, okay, that guy was right about what he was saying, what was going to happen with ASU. And I, I thought they were going to do better than they did. So we, we obviously were like, weren't negative enough maybe at the outset. You know, because I thought they'd win five or six games and coaching crushed them. And it was, it was terrible. But uh, somehow through this, Sun Devil Source is back to peak membership, an all-time high. We've had a great couple weeks. People are going to be really excited to see what's going to happen over the next year to two years, right? Can't have lost a game. Can't lose a game uh, for the next eight months. Right, so everybody's gonna, yeah. everybody's gonna be, everybody's gonna be fired up about that, right? So we'll probably, probably grow a bunch more. Uh, and I just am very happy that everybody is wants to be a part of it, and it means a lot to me. So thank you. We definitely appreciate everyone's support. Uh, and as you said, all those new subscribers, thank you to all of them. And if you're not a subscriber, now's the time to subscribe. A lot of exciting content to come your way in the coming months, both basketball, hockey, and Kenny Dillingham and ASU football. So make sure to subscribe to Sun Devil Source. But that's it for this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report Podcast. For Cole Bradley, Noah Furtado, and Chris Cartman, I'm Ethan Ryder. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next time.